Q&A with Bishop Julian Porteous. For another session of Q&A with Bishop Julian, you have here with you Javina Graham and the wonderful, the effervescent Jeremy Ambrose. That's me. But we're not the stars of today. Today is Q&A with Bishop Julian and we have a really hot topic for Bishop Julian today. Let's see if we can stump him. So Bishop Julian, a hot topic around the world, yeah indeed around the world, that we've got legislation coming out of our ears in all different areas, is the issue of homosexual marriage. So can I just ask you, lots of people don't understand why the church opposes same-sex unions. Doesn't everyone have the right to get married? The right to get married is a universal human right. Everybody does have the right to get married. However, having said that, I think people have a right to get married. What we have to look at is the nature of marriage. And I think, think this is the issue. We have to make a distinction between individual rights and also what is the actual nature of marriage itself. And I suppose this is where it gets controversial. This is where the church's position comes under a lot of uh, challenge. But the church has always understood, as has human civilization in general, understood that the nature of marriage is a union between a man and a woman, and it is open to life. I think those are the critical components of what marriage is. The difficulty with same-sex union is that those two elements are not present. It's not a union between a man and a woman, it's a union between two men or two women. And secondly, by its nature, it's not open to life. I see, okay. Yeah, a lot of listeners would be probably be asking Bishop, well, how about, um, I mean, the fact that two people might love each other so two men might love each other so much, you know, or, well, why can't they? And especially if they are, you know, that openness to life you spoke about, but they'll probably compare it to couples who, who can't have children, even if they wanted to. On that first question of two people loving each other, obviously we recognise that that does exist and those relationships do exist. And I think it's appropriate if two people do enter into a a lifelong union and they've been together for a long, long time. I think there needs to be civil laws that are in place to protect their rights and and so on. I think civil society should do that. That's quite appropriate. But we can't call it marriage. Mm -hmm. That's the difference. We can say, yes, people can enter those unions because they do love each other and want to have a relationship, but don't call it marriage because it's by definition, it's not a marriage. Mm -hmm. It's a union. And that's why I don't think we should talk about gay marriage. Mm-hmm. We should talk about same-sex unions. And I think civil authorities can make provision for same-sex unions, but a same-sex couple can't expect to be able to say ours is a marriage because by definition it's not. Does this mean that we're discriminating against homosexual people and saying that they don't have the same status in our society as, other, as heterosexual people? That's another very good question. I think, firstly, we say we're not discriminating against them directly because of the fact that they're homosexual. We right. would, and we would say that a person who, who may believe they're homosexual does have a right to be respected in the integrity of their own being, even though we may not necessarily agree if they're having an, an active lifestyle, that we might not agree with it, but we do would respect their freedom. However, 
we also have to say that there are certain fundamental truths about the nature of human life. And one of those truths is the fact that, that marriage is a complementary union between a man and a woman. And that that's something that's built substantially into who we are as human beings. And it's clearly the case that the vast, vast majority of people have a sexuality which is based in complementarity. They are drawn to one another. And the mystery and wonder of marriage is that it is about two people who are different, who have a, a different sexual identity, a male and a female, who are drawn into a union which is ultimately a profound linking of, of complementarity, that the, the male receives something from the femininity of the woman, the woman receives something from the masculinity of the male. In the end, I think that's the plan of God. That's how God created us. And that's how God intended married, uh, family, human life to be lived in the context of a, of a marriage union. If you like, he created us quite deliberately for each other. It's very interesting that the very first thing that's recorded in the book of Genesis after the creation of man and woman is, is the statement, that's why a man leaves his father and mother, joins himself to his wife, and the two become one. It's like God saying, I've created male and female for marriage. Okay. Great. This isn't the only parameter that we, that we place around marriage. I mean, there are definitions that, you know, to the exclusion of all others. So, you know, we don't have polygamous marriages. And this is all for, like, the benefit of the marriage act, isn't it? That's very true. Societies have, in general, established a lot of customs and practices and laws around marriage because they've realised how important it is for the, the well-being of society. And so that's why couples can't just get married. They have to fill out forms and, and they have to wait a month before they can actually get married. Sure. That's why the time they apply. All those kind of things as, as society is saying, marriage is very important. Yeah. And we do need to protect it and, and establish rules around it. And it's also true that, and I think it's something that people sense very deep in the depths of their own being, that marriage is meant to be a lifelong union. Mm. Now, in some cases, it will not work out that way, but people still sense that that is what marriage is. And by definition, people don't say, I'll love you and honour you for the next five years, <laughs> and then we'll, we'll, it's up for renegotiation. No, we say, no, we naturally sense that marriage is such a reality that it's meant to be lifelong, by, by definition. Sure. Mm. Coming back to that previous question, Perhaps a, a couple who are same-sex attracted might compare themselves to a couple you know, who are heterosexual but who can't have children. And they may perhaps say, well, we have an openness to life. If we could, we would. But since we can't, we're in the same category as, as another couple. Why can't we just adopt or, or something like that? And, and then that will be our openness to life. What would mm. you say to that question, Bishop yeah. Julian? Firstly, it is true that a couple can get married and have by their own desires and intention to have children, want to have children, but for various factors are unable to do so. So they still have an openness to life and a desire for family, and they understand that as integral to the meaning of what they're doing. In the case of a couple who can't, they can then seek to adopt children. Now, in the case of a same-sex couple, you could sort of say, well, they might like to have children, but it's not in any way physically possible for them to do it. So to say, yes, we like to have children, but they know they can't do it in terms of their relationship. 
and really children should be generated from the relationship. There's a whole question I think that's going to come up later on about the genetic identity of children and that one of the great things that brings stability to a person's life is they know that this is my father, this is my mother, this is my identity, this is my heritage. Mm. You know, when you create a child from another source, all those things are called into question. And so the identity of the child becomes very, very fragile. And I think in time, this will emerge as a, as a very real issue if we do allow for surrogacy and various other ways in which children can come into same-sex unions. The other question I think that is um, very important is that a child needs a father and a mother. That a male child needs a mother as well as a father. The father image, yes, of masculinity, but the woman gives very particular contribution to the nature of the young boy growing up and similarly with a father and and, and a daughter. It's very evident, and, and teachers will say this, that where because of divorce or whatever, a child lacks a, a, a figure, either a father figure, which is often the case, or, or a mother figure, that they are very often emotionally insecure, that they, they're not balanced in a lot of respects. Because again, I think it's the intention that a child is going to be best nurtured when you have both a father and a mother. This again is a, a limitation where you have a same-sex union. Again, all of these things now are not being looked at carefully because they haven't become the reality. My fear is that down the track, we will, if if legislation comes in and if this becomes more and more of the practice, that we'll find a lot of children who are growing up lacking uh, the opportunity of a full natural human development because of the lack of one partner in the marriage, a father or or a mother. So what you're saying is having two fathers is not the same as having a mother and a father and the child probably will have some disadvantage in their life because of that. I think that will be proven in time. And I certainly think now we have to say this should be a serious consideration, uh, particularly when it comes to, and now laws in, in Australia uh, often now accept the right of um, same-sex couples to have to adopt children. And people say, look, it's their right. Um, I would argue that the basic right the child has yeah. is a right to a father and a mother. Okay. Mm. Does everyone have a right to a child? You don't have a right to a child. I would rather say that a child is a blessing, yeah. is a fruit, is a gift of the marriage union. And, uh, and in fact, dangerous if people adopt the attitude that they have a right because somehow they're, they're kind of claiming that it's for me. I want a child for me. Mm. Rather, the attitude should be a couple say, uh, a child is a gift from God entrusted to us to care and nurture so we don't go after children for our sake we give life and we realise that in the end we, we want to nurture that new and fresh life sure well that's a very beautiful distinction otherwise I guess you have um, uh, children being treated like products or something that can be bored and, and you know that you know we'll go to the shops and, and you know, we want with blue eyes or this or that or so it's a very beautiful distinction. Well, that sounds great. Mm. Thank you, Bishop. Great. Thanks very much, Bishop Julian. And um, we'll see you next time on Q&A with Bishop Julian. Q&A with Bishop Julian Porteous. Now to my favourite part of the show, Did You Know? Do you think that just a little 
piece of Catholic curiosity. Uh-huh. We, we often think that a lot of Asian countries um, only ever met Christianity since, say, the 17th or 18th centuries. You know, that's yeah. often the case. We often think, even of China, now we think, well, well, the Christianity only came to China, say, when the Europeans started coming around to China, or we often do think that uh, India and, uh, and Sri Lanka only ever uh, came across Christianity when the Portuguese or the Dutch or uh, so forth came to these, these countries. I think that's to belie a basic historical truth. Firstly, with regard to uh, Sri Lanka and to India, I think it's always important to remember that there's very strong evidence of the fact that St. Thomas, one of the apostles, went as far as India. And there's even some evidence to say that he went to Sri Lanka. Wow. Uh, and and so the faith, the Christian faith in places like Sri Lanka and India go right back to apostolic times. They are apostolic churches. They have apostolic origins. And certainly in India, there's uh, uh, the church there has, has links back to the Syrian church that go right back through the centuries. The other interesting um, story is about China. I just find this very, very interesting. Pope Nicholas IV, who was a pope between the years 1288 and 1292, actually sent a Franciscan friar to the court of Kublai Khan. And and that led to the establishment of a Catholic church in China. You'll be happy to know that the first Archbishop of Beijing was appointed in the year 1307. A piece of interesting Catholic trivia. Fantastic. Thanks, Bishop Julian. You've been listening to Q&A with Bishop Julian Porteous. For more episodes, visit credio.org.au.